but to remember also that we must not take so long to choose that the choice gets made by our indecision or inaction. We may choose wisely or foolishly, but the point is that we develop the ability to recognize where our actions are leading us and where we have actually gone and reformulate and assess on a continual basis if we are truly working for justice or if we've fallen into uh, computation or complicity or betrayal. There are always options. I've learned this from the trickster tradition in my culture, but they cut both ways and sometimes even slice and dice. To move beyond the tight circle that we often seem caught in is hollowed out by conservatism and liberalism means that we stop collapsing difference and diversity and plurality and all those terms we use to signal that humanity and creation is large into such neat and pristine buzzwords and instead realize that we will not always agree. There will be times of reasoned and unreasoned dissent that we may not be able to work together on everything or every issue. Sometimes it is to recast from our worldviews the things we've learned through the years, but even as small children, the police are not always your friend. It is not always wise to wait to cross at a corner or even to cross at corners. In other words, there are few absolutes in life, and solidarities and differences are just as caught up in this reality as episodes or steady diets of disaster and ruin. But I do try to give all of who I am to the work for justice and hang in there with others who recognize that solidarities and differences are messy and ultimately human. And in some small way, this marks our humanity and turns the absurdities into living, breathing, active hope. Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Good morning. I realized that I wasn't really thinking about the wardrobe decision this morning, so I'm going to be holding this while I talk, so I apologize for that. Tim, is there a way to lower this a little bit? Okay. I apologize if this is blocking my face for that way. <laughs> we're good. I think I might set this on. I think we're good. Thank you. So, as some of you know, and have probably heard at some point over the past year, I'm kind of a big fan of Jesus. 
And I have been for kind of a long time, and this has been a source of various jokes over the last year. Um, and it's funny because as a child, I loved hearing stories about him, and especially the ones where he was taking care of people who were poor and marginalized. And as I've gotten older, I've really loved hearing stories about his issues with authority, which probably says as much about me as it does about him. And I also, I would have to say that my favorite stories about Jesus that are in the Bible are the ones in which he defends the dignity of women. And I really love reading those stories. And unfortunately, the story that Matt read for us this morning is not one of those stories. And this story from the Gospel of Matthew is one that's bothered me for a long time. And so I've actually been doing a lot of thinking about it over the past year. And I just wanted to talk about it this morning. And the way that I'm going to do that is, um, if you were here a few weeks ago, Neil preached on the Bible. And he gave us a really good method for being able to look at really strange stories like this and figure out what's going on there and what we can take from those things for our lives. Um, so Eric's going to go ahead and put up, it's this fourfold method of interpretation. And um, so what I'm going to ask you all to do, I'm going to kind of walk us through the literal part of that and give us some historical and social context for the story. And then I'm going to ask you guys to be thinking about the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical possible meanings of the story. And then we'll talk about that at the end and I'll see what you all are thinking. So first of all, um, a little bit of background and context for where we're at. In Matthew's gospel, right before this story happens, Jesus is having an argument with the Jewish authorities, which is pretty normal for him. And they're upset with him because he's acting like he understands the Jewish tradition better than they do, which they're not too happy about. And so right after that story happens, Jesus and his disciples leave Jewish territory and they enter Gentile territory. And there's no explanation for why they do this or why they leave. But they're walking down the road and this woman starts to call out after them, begging Jesus to help her daughter who's possessed by a demon. And Jesus, who in the passage right before this was acting holier than thou with the religious authorities, suddenly acts like he doesn't have the time of day for this woman. And he just keeps walking and ignoring her. But she doesn't give up. She refuses to be silenced. And she continues to follow and yell after him, begging her to listen and to help her. And his disciples start to get really uncomfortable about this woman who won't be quiet. And so they beg him to send her away, to tell her to just be quiet and to leave. What's interesting is the reaction that Jesus has to his disciples. And it, I think it kind of points to an internal conflict that Jesus himself must have been having. Because the disciples are like, tell her to go away, make this stop. And instead of responding to that, Jesus acts as if they're trying to convince him to help her. And so he gives them an excuse of why he's not going to do this. And he says, place here. Um, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And so in other words, Jesus is under the impression that whatever his life purpose might be, it only involves the Jewish people. And so even though he knows that he probably is capable of healing this woman's daughter because he's healed other people in the past, he's trying to convince himself that her problem is not his problem and that he doesn't have to waste his talent of healing on someone who's not a Jew. So while he's having this conversation with the disciples, the woman manages to push her way through this crowd of men. 
and she falls at his feet and she says, Lord, help me. She places her body in his path so that he no longer has the option of ignoring her. He either has to interact with her or walk on her. And so Jesus then says to her what is perhaps my least favorite quote of Jesus in the entire Bible. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. To be clear, he's referring to the Canaanite people as the dogs of the Jews. And we'll get back to that in a moment of why he's saying that. So the woman receives his scathing words and without missing a beat, she says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Her response is almost as painful for me to think about as Jesus' initial words were. Why is she agreeing with these derogatory words about her people? Why doesn't she tell him off? She clearly doesn't lack the courage. But then I realize she's a mother whose daughter is suffering and she'll do anything. She'll say anything to get her daughter the help that she needs. So she bears his hurtful words and she plays his game until he hears her, which he eventually does. And Jesus is amazed that she's undeterred by his words. Her ability to meet him and to enter into his own game in a way, her refusal to back down changes his heart and mind. And I find it really interesting. I was reading an article about this story, and it said that this story and um, another version of it, which is in the Gospel of Mark, are the only places in the entire Bible where someone challenges something Jesus says and wins. And so I think that makes this really significant. Jesus praises this woman for her great faith, and he heals her daughter. Quick story. Last summer, I was doing this internship at a hospital in St. Louis, and it's a sort of internship that a lot of people do when they're in seminary or divinity school, and it's called clinical pastoral education. And you spend half your time um, visiting patients and being a chaplain at the hospital, and you spend the, you spend the other half of your time doing this group processing with the other people who are in the internship with you. And the group processing time can get really intimate because you're trying to figure out why you are the way you are and what things in your past make you who you are and how you can work through those things in order to care better for the people um, that you're ministering to in the hospital. And so it's a lot like group therapy in a way. And we got to this point in the summer where five of the six of us had been pretty vulnerable with one another, but there was this one guy in our group who was still holding out on us. And rather than open up, he would say this stuff like, I've experienced some really hard things, and you all really couldn't handle hearing the hard things that I've been through. There came this day where I was just so sick of his superior attitude that I called him out on it. And I said, every person in this room has experienced hard things, and we all know what it's like to suffer. Who are you to tell us that we can't handle hearing about your life? And I told him, you can continue to choose to be standoffish and not to be vulnerable with us, but everyone will lose, including you. He was very taken aback by my straightforwardness, 
And he told me that he'd never been called out by a woman before. He, he said to me a few weeks later, um, and after this time we'd become friends, and he said, Carrie, that was the moment I loved you. When you saw me and you called me out of the places I hide. And he went on to say, I just kept thinking, who is that smart girl? And though he meant all of this as a great compliment, I didn't take it that way because it's not particularly flattering to me about the fact that he was shocked that I was smart or that I was assertive because I was a woman. And though this seemed to be some sort of like transformational moment in his life, for me it was just another tiring example of how the patriarchal norms that we all are very familiar with influence our expectations of one another. And though the encounter with the bold Canaanite woman was a transformative experience for Jesus, I can't really imagine that she was deeply moved or flattered when he praised her faith. Because she wasn't trying to impress him. She didn't need his affirmation. She was just trying to get her daughter healed. There's an important thing I want to emphasize about the context of this story, and that's the intersectionality of identity that's at play here. As I'm sure we're all aware, identity is a multifaceted reality. And because of that, it's too simplistic to reduce what's happening in this story to being simply about gender issues. There are also serious cultural and religious issues at play. For example, Jesus was a Jew. And he grew up hearing stories about how his ancestors, the Israelites, had been persecuted as slaves in Egypt. Then God sent Moses to deliver his people and to take them to the promised land of Canaan. The Israelites pushed the native people, the Canaanites, out of their land because God had promised it to them and they made their home there. And so Jesus grew up believing that Canaan rightfully belonged to his people all along because he heard that God had promised it to them. And I want to pause right here for a minute because I want to acknowledge that anti-Semitism is a very real thing and it's really easy to read this story in that sort of way. And so I want to say that this problematic narrative that Jesus is working from and that he was raised to believe is not a Jewish problem. It's a people problem. Because I'm sure that we can think of all kinds of people from all kinds of religion, all kinds of religions who have colonized land that other people were already living in and about how that happened in the founding of our own country. Um, so I just want us to hold that along with um, everything that's going on in this story. So now for the woman, she was a Canaanite. And she grew up hearing the story about how her people had been oppressed and displaced from their homeland by the Israelites who claimed that their God was supporting them. And so surely this complicates her decision to ask Jesus to heal her daughter because even though she had heard that he was a healer, he was one of them, a descendant of the people who had oppressed her people centuries before. And so this also complicates Jesus' ability to respond to her with love and mercy because she was one of them, a descendant of the people whose misfortune had made his own ancestors appear brave and strong after they themselves had been oppressed for so long. And I'm just, in this story, I'm struck by the fact 
that the stories that we grow up hearing matter. They shape our identities and they affect the ways in which we're able to see and hear and respond to one another. They determine whether we can expect to have a position of privilege or to be discriminated against in any interaction. The stories that we hear shape us and they form our views of reality. They create and perpetuate power structures and labels that simplify and silence and objectify and oppress. And it's a gift when we meet people who are bold enough to help us edit the insufficient narratives that we've been fed since infancy. In my uh, master's program, there's 12 of us who are in my year, and I'm constantly grateful for the ways that each of these people is challenging me and helping me to relearn, to tell my own stories in new ways, and they're constantly broadening my understanding of reality. And three of my 12 classmates are black men. Last year, I started to notice that all three of them dress much nicer than the rest of us for class, often wearing a shirt and tie or even a full suit when they came into class. And one day, I made this offhanded comment to one of them, and I was trying to sound as playful as possible, but this was actually coming from a place of insecurity within myself because I was trying to figure out, should I be dressing nicer? Like, what's the deal? And um, so I asked him, why do you dress so nicely when you come to class? And he informed me that it was part of his daily effort to avoid being stopped and harassed by campus security, who apparently make a point of asking black men why they're on campus and if they have a reason to be there. And I was humbled and appalled by his response. And I just kept thinking about how theoretically I could come to class in my pajamas and though my classmates might think I looked really tacky, no one would question my right to be there. And I certainly wouldn't be a security threat. No one would question me. But my black male colleagues couldn't even wear jeans to class without being stopped and questioned. And my friend's willingness to be honest with me and to tell me about this part of his experience helped me to, to expand my own view of reality. And it helped me to become more acutely aware of my own privilege and of my own insufficient narrative that needs to be perpetually challenged and expanded. And I think this story shows us that even Jesus needed his view of reality challenged and expanded. Because at the time of this story, his understanding of the love and mercy of God was apparently limited. It was too small. And if you continue reading through Matthew's gospel, it becomes clear that this encounter with this woman turned his limited ideas upside down and changed the entire course and perspective of, of his ministry from this point forward. But there's one thing um, that I think it's important that we haven't really talked about to point out about the complexity of identity that's operating the story because we have to consider the fact that in the Christian tradition, a very key aspect of the identity of Jesus is that he's believed to be God. Jesus is understood not only to be a Jewish man, but also to be God in the flesh or Emmanuel, God with us. And we talked about that at Christmas time when we talked about the incarnation. 
But as I read this story, it's sort of unsettling to think about the mind of God needing to be challenged and expanded to become more accepting or more loving. That's kind of hard for me to swallow. And so as I've read the story over and over, I've tried to figure out what theological point was Matthew trying to make here? What was he saying about God? And how does this speak to the wider Christian tradition about theology of the Incarnation? And so as I thought about this, um, I think that in this story, Matthew is making this argument for the fullness of the Incarnation. In the sense that he seems to be suggesting that God was so committed to experiencing the fullness of being human, that he was even willing to take on the human mind which is susceptible to prejudice and limited narratives. It's as if Matthew is suggesting that in the act of becoming a human being, God was willing to risk the influence of being intellectually shaped by the inadequate and unjust social constructs that shape us all. Because it's only in taking this risk that God as Jesus could ever be fully human. Because as we all know, to be human is to be vulnerable, to having our minds and our worldviews shaped by concept and ideas that perpetuate the status quo and elevate some while disempowering others. To be human is in, to be in perpetual need of this conversion of heart and mind, which can only come through confrontations with realities that challenge and expand our own. So I want to kind of stop there and hear from you guys as we're thinking about um, these different types of interpretations. And just starting with that allegorical interpretation, and I want to hear, as you're thinking through the story, what are some larger truths in the world, in life, that you feel like this story points us towards or that we can take from it? like the, the severe need of this woman that she would put herself in a situation of such uncertainty yeah. and of such like you know, stepping out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I feel like you kind of alluded to this in your sermon. I don't know if it falls under the allegorical category or another, but just sort of the, what, I don't know what the word is, like near actions of like the woman laying down herself for her child, and then you can anticipate later on in this narrative, Jesus laying mm-hmm. himself down. Um, and you guys were talking about how he learns from this woman. Mm-hmm. What yeah. That Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I think there's also a there's a story about groupthink and how it's very difficult to make a decision that's not popular with mm-hmm. the people surrounding you. And yeah. On someone who's different from you, um, it's kind of, Jesus is kind of like that person with a chorus of bad friends around you. Right. Right. <laughs> 
Right, it's a whole other story, yep, yep. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I think it speaks to the power of experience. Like, you can go into something with a very staunch belief system and feel like you're never going to waver from it. But when, until you get into that, like, human-to-human experience or interaction, it's just amazing that something so powerful as that could completely change your way of thought, mm-hmm. which happened to Jesus in this moment where um, the power of that experience with, with the woman shifted his mindset in that specific moment, which I think is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Justin? Maybe they're not bad people, but also people who are fiercely loyal to the ones that they're close to mm-hmm. at the expense of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have two more thoughts. Yeah, one yeah. of the bigger truth is that this makes me think about how dangerous it is to take one photo out of the Bible without context. Mm-hmm. Because like what you were saying about the whole story of like Jesus' development like, mm-hmm. and changes is like, you know, if you think of the whole book as just one pure truth, right, you right, right, right. You think of any point and know that it's right, and you know that. Kind of yeah, absolutely. What do we think about um, the moral, the moral things that we can pull from this story? How can we practically apply this in some way in our own lives or interactions? Coming to my mind, but like lean into 
people who are yeah. loving our, yeah. ourselves around us. And then the other thing is just thinking about how we relate to just God or just everything that is life that's coming at us. Can we, like, if it's not going well, can when, when are the times we need to challenge God or challenge yeah. God? Or maybe challenge our ideas about who God is, mm-hmm. what we think that is. And like, I'm pissed off at right, that right. version of God or I'm pissed off that the world is doing this to me rather than just kind of taking it as it comes. Yeah. And, and what can happen in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, there's so many examples of people be calling God out and just being like, this is not okay that this is happening. And, and I think that often, I think that's been kind of watered down in Christianity and that um, there are a lot of Christians who are very like nervous about doing that, but there's certainly a whole tradition of people who've been doing that. And this story, I think, is a really good example in the, in the Christian Bible um, of something like that, yeah. And what about this anagogical um, interpretation? And this kind of goes back to, we talked a while back about eschatology and kind of this uh, Christian movement of the narrative um, towards the idea of the end or the end times. Um, But talking about this more, um, thinking about what do we hope for? You know, like we hope, I assume, that the world gets better in some way. And so what specific sort of hope um, do we take from this story kind of going forward, looking long term? Mm. 
until it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also since in this story God is a person, I think it can also point towards challenging people mm -hmm. um, who are, are moral and donors. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, thanks guys. This is, um, it's good to be able to do this back and forth. So it's not just like we're being talked at, um, but I really, I think it's good for us to all come into the conversation. So thank you, amen.